You know, announcements are a big deal. Churches have all kinds of announcements. Some churches uh, make announcements before the worship service. Others wait till the end. Um, some make a whole lot of announcements. Every little thing that's happening in every church, they just uh, announce the whole thing and uh, make everybody sit through it. Others just announce the big stuff. You know, if something uh, can be uh, impressed upon people as if, or, as if it's a really big event, you want to announce it every way possible, online, uh, from the stage, in every way possible. Um, politicians, when they have announcements, they call press conferences for their announcements. And just about everyone these days makes announcements through social media, Facebook or Twitter, whether someone, for example, is announcing an engagement or pregnancy or both at the same time. Um, let's say you had to make the most important announcement ever. I mean, not just the most important announcement of the month or the year or even the most important announcement of your lifetime, but let's say it is the most important announcement in all of human history. Who would be the first to know? Would you call the president? Maybe a, a king, a royal court, a council of the nations? That's not what God did. God chose to give the most important news ever that the Savior of the world has been born to some men who tended sheep for a living. Jesus had been born to Mary in the town of Bethlehem, and he was swaddled, that means he was wrapped up tight in cloth, and he was placed in a manger, he was placed in a feeding trough for animals. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we pick up the story, so I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. It says, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. So the most important news in all the world was about to come to these shepherds. Now, shepherds in that day were despised people. They were considered unreliable. They were considered dishonest. There was no accountability when they're out there in the fields at night. Uh, they were unclean, in fact, according to ceremonial law. And so no one really wanted to have much to do with shepherds. So why would God give the most important message of all of human history to a group of men engaged in a profession that no one respected? Well, think of it this way. We know that Jesus ministry was to reach out to the outcasts, reach out to the sinners, reach out to those that society had rejected and, and pushed aside. And shouldn't it be logical for us to understand that the outcasts and the sinners and those that have been pushed aside by society would be the first to know? You see, you and I, man bases his uh, information, his discernment on people based on one's reputation or based on the outside. Scripture says that man judges according to the outside, but God judges according to the heart. And so one of the themes of Luke's gospel is that God shows no partiality whatsoever. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or whether you're poor. It doesn't matter whether society lifts you up and magnifies your name and exalts you 
or whether society looks down upon you. None of that matters to God. God looks at the heart. God shows no partiality. God wants to save you regardless of what others say about you. In fact, in the very first chapter of the book of Luke, we won't read this right now, but if you go back and you read Mary's praise to God in Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 46, go back and read that sometime. You'll discover a very prominent theme that the coming of the Savior has reversed the world's values. God has taken a lowly girl, a teenage girl that, that no one's ever heard of, no one really knows about. He's taken this lowly young woman in Mary, and he has blessed her. He has exalted her. And her name would become famous. And all people of the earth would bless her name. And that's what God does. God lifts up the lowly, and God humbles the exalted. God reverses what man considers to be important. And so it should come as no surprise to us that the rich dignitaries of that day were not the first ones to know. God did not send angels to King Herod. God did not send angels to the Roman emperor. God sent angels to these lowly, good-for-nothing shepherds. And they were the first ones to attend the baby Jesus. Now, we don't know much about these particular shepherds. We don't know their names. But I believe they're worthy of at least one commendation. You know, they were doing their job when no one was watching but God. They're out there in the fields at night, tending the sheep as they were supposed to be doing. And I think this is something that you should remember. Whether you're a a modern-day shepherd like myself, a shepherd of people, or whether you have some other role that you play that God has given you, you may not be rich, you may not be famous, The world may not know who you are, but God does. God is watching. God wants you to be faithful. And these shepherds, God was watching. They were the very first ones to hear the news. And so suddenly to these shepherds out on the field at night, there appeared an angel. And there appeared a great heavenly light. God, the glory of God, enveloped them in light. And they were terribly frightened. It is similar to what we read about in the Old Testament with the Shekinah glory of God. When God makes himself manifest, there's a brilliance of light. And we remember how Moses' face shone like the sun for many, many days because he was in the very presence of God. The glory of God came to these shepherds, and he made himself manifest to them in a way. And they were terribly frightened. And so God was present that day. And we read in verse 10, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And we'll get to what that good news is in in just a minute. But I want you to look, look at a couple of different words here. First, the angel is bringing good news. This is, this is the Greek word, euangelizo. Uh, we get the word evangelism from it. It's the gospel. It's the good news. This is the good news of all of human history that is coming to these shepherds. And it's good news of great joy. The birth of Jesus called Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and many others to rejoice greatly. But even more than that, what we need to understand is in the Hebrew Scriptures and what we call the Old Testament, 
Joy is one of the manifestations that God's kingdom has come. It's one of the things that will come in the end times. And so the idea is that in the here and now we suffer, maybe we're exiled, maybe we're not, uh, our life isn't what we want it to be, uh, but, but there's coming a day when there's going to be great joy. The joy that we find in our hearts will be completely fulfilled someday. And that day will come when the kingdom of God arrives. And so when the angel says great joy is coming, it is a hint to us that the kingdom of God has come. It has come in a sense in which the person of Jesus Christ is the one who brings the kingdom of God. And he brings with that kingdom great joy. In fact, when Jesus began his ministry some years later, what did Jesus preach? He preached the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is standing right before you. The angel says to the shepherds, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Question, does this refer to just Israel, or does this refer to all the world? Well, to be technically precise, when we read about the people, that phrase, the people, in Luke's gospel, it does refer to Israel. But we know from one of the other themes of Luke's gospel is that God's kingdom has come not only for Israel. He came to Israel first, but also by extension to all the world, to all the Gentiles, to the Roman centurion who had faith in Christ. It came to, um, all, to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. It came to all of those that Paul would preach to in all of his ministry. The kingdom of God is coming. This is good news for all the people. And that should remind us again, the good news of Jesus is for everyone. It's for everyone. I was reading today, uh, or, or yesterday actually, a, um, a little post that uh, a person that uh, I'm, I correspond with on Facebook, he's a pastor, and he's a uh, volunteer at the local uh, fire department. They have all volunteer uh, firemen. And uh, one day, some of the firemen came to his church, and a person in his church said, Pastor, we don't pay you to hang out with those kinds of people. Whoever made that statement has forgotten something very important. The good news of Jesus is for all people. It's for all people. And so we need to be careful not to look at someone on the outside and think, oh, they, they have a different race. They have a different socioeconomic class. They, they speak a little bit funny. They look a, bit, a little bit funny. They act a little bit funny. They're hard to love. And so therefore, I'm just not going to share the gospel with them. The good news of Jesus is for all people. And the angel goes on in verse 11 and tells us exactly what the good news is. Verse 11, a great verse. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Today, the angel says, this today is the beginning of the age of salvation. Today, this fulfillment of prophecy has occurred. And he is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I think this is a great verse because one of the things it does, it tells us who, who, exactly who Jesus is. The angel attributes to Jesus three different titles, Savior, Christ, and Lord. The word Savior means 
First of all, it says something about Jesus. It says that he's the only Savior of the world. He's the only Savior of the world. I was watching a documentary this week on uh, Nazi Germany and what led up to the uh, installation of Adolf Hitler and how he gained so much power and, and how really how the people of Germany put all of their faith in Adolf Hitler. And one of the things that he did is that he uh, took upon himself a title. And see, in the German language, there's no plural word for Savior. In other words, in, according to German tradition, German language, there can only be one Savior. And so the people turned to Hitler to be that Savior. Well, we know the truth is that there is only one Savior. Certainly not Adolf Hitler. It's not you and me, but it's Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of the world. He's the only one who can save the world. The word Savior also says something about you and me. It says that we need to be saved. I mean, if a Savior has come into the world, that says something about you. It says that you fall short. It says that you've missed the mark. Let me ask you a question. Have you been saved from your sins? And how do you know if you've been saved from your sins? I mean, how does a person become saved? Let me explain very briefly how a person becomes saved. First of all, you have to understand that you are a sinner, that you are someone who's missed the mark. You have fallen short. You have sin in your heart, sin that you act out, sin that you speak. You fall short of God's ideal because of this sin. And the Bible says that in order to be saved, you have to repent from that. Turn away from sin. Turn away from your unbelief. And you have to believe in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have to trust in Him. You have to turn to Him in faith and ask Jesus, the only one who can save you, to do just that. The angel says that Jesus is the Savior. He says that He is the Christ. This means He's the Messiah. Uh, the Greek word uh, Christos Um, is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach, and it means he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's the one who is the king. He is the one who is the deliverer. He is the one that the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to. He's the one who fulfills prophecy. He's the one about whom the prophets spoke. He is the Christ. And finally, the angel says that he is also the Lord. He's the Lord. He is the one who rules. When we talk about someone having lordship over someone else, we're talking about someone who has authority, who has rulership over someone else. Maybe in a, in a bad sense, someone might be domineering over someone else. Jesus is not lord in a domineering sense, in the kind of negative sense that he causes you hurt, he causes you pain, but rather Jesus is the one when you learn to submit yourself to the lordship of Christ, he is the one who brings you comfort, He is the one who brings you peace. He is the one who brings you direction in life. He's the one who rules your life. And so it's as simple as saying, Lord, it's like my life is here and I'm I'm driving a car. If if you want to consider that car your life, and you say, Lord, I want you to sit in the driver's seat. And you take me where you want me to go. And I'll go wherever you want me to go. And so you yield yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When we say that Jesus is Lord, this is a title that's used of God in the Old Testament. And it tells us that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. 
the angel uses all three terms in speaking to these shepherds. It reminds me when we talk about salvation of Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13 of that verse of that chapter says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so back to Luke chapter 2, verse 12, the angel continues his message to the shepherds. He says, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Let me talk to you a little bit about this, this angel. Angels are very interesting creatures, and especially in, in Jewish thought, rabbinical thought, uh, they're very interesting creatures. Uh, uh, ancient Jews loved to study angels, and it would do us good if we understood more about what angels are. There are certain different kinds of angels. Some are ministering angels. The ministering angels are those angels that attend God's court. In other words, they fulfill God's will by praising him night and day. And they are concerned only for one thing, that God is honored. Now, in ancient Jewish thought, ancient Jewish wisdom, which is not what you're going to find in Scripture, but these would be, for example, commentaries and, and thoughts along the line for uh, the ancient Jewish uh, rabbis and others would get together, and the, the scribes, they would get together and they would study the Scriptures and they would try to figure things out. And they would come up with different theological thoughts or possibilities. And according to ancient Jewish wisdom... Um, these uh, angels were so devoted to God's honor that sometimes they objected to what God did. That might seem contradictory, and really I guess it would be, but the, the angels could not figure out, according to ancient Jewish wisdom, why God decided to create Adam. I mean, everything else that God created was good. Everything else that God created does exactly what God created it to do, and so it must be good, and therefore it glorifies God, and so the angels are happy. But Adam comes along, Adam and Eve comes along, and this race, this human race, quickly learns to disobey God and dishonor God. And the angels couldn't figure out, why, God, would you allow this to occur? Why, when everything else praises your name and does exactly what you want it to do, here's man and man does not praise your name. And so the angels, according to ancient Jewish wisdom at least, had a problem with God's creation of Adam. They didn't understand what God was up to. They had a problem, for example, when Enoch, you remember in Genesis, Enoch was translated directly uh, to heaven, directly to the presence of God. He didn't die. And so they had a problem with that. That seemed to not fall in line with, with God's plan. That seemed to be an anomaly there. They had a problem with Moses receiving God's law. God, why would you give Moses a sinner, a murderer? Why would you give him your law? Why would you choose the people of Israel who disobey you constantly one time after another? Why would you give them your holy law? In short, according to ancient Jewish wisdom, these angels objected to mankind. To them, man was a disaster. And if Israel, God's chosen people, was faithless, then all of humanity was doomed. But the swaddling cloths and the manger 
should be clues to us because I'll tell you a couple of other things that ancient Jewish wisdom talks about. In Ezekiel chapter 16, Israel is described as a castaway, sort of a, a throwaway. And it says, it actually says this in Ezekiel chapter 16, that Israel, like an abandoned baby, is not even wrapped in cloths. And so here's Israel. They're so disobedient that they're not worthy of being swaddled in cloths. Ancient Jewish wisdom, again, which you won't find in the Bible, says that when Adam sinned, and again, please understand you don't find this in Scripture, but it says when Adam sinned, that Adam was worried that God was going to tie him to a manger and make him eat grass like a donkey. Now, that sounds silly. Like I said, you won't find that in Scripture. But according to the ancient stories, God didn't make Adam do that. And so here in this story, which is absolutely true, Israel, it was not worthy of being wrapped in cloths, according to Ezekiel 16. And sinful man was not connected to a manger. But when the sinless Son of God became a human, the angels found him wrapped in cloths something Israel was not worthy of because of sin. And the angels found him lying in a manger, something that sinful Adam was not. And so now the angels began to understand the incredible plan that God had. Up until that point, man was displeasing to God, but now God has shown his favor to mankind. Now, because the Savior of the world is wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now the angels understand that the eternal Son of God, whose glory they had beheld for all of eternity in heaven, has become a human. And God is pleased with it. And so in verse 13, we read, And suddenly there appeared to the, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom he is well pleased. With whom he is pleased. It is only through Christ that we can glorify God in the highest. It is only through Christ that we are the recipients of God's shalom, God's peace. And it is only through Christ that we can please God. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom he is pleased. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We read in verses 15 through 19. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it 
wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. You know, the incredible memories that Mary had surrounding the birth of the Son of God, that stayed with Mary throughout her entire life. And I think that those memories would help her make the transition from simply being the mother of Jesus to becoming a follower of Jesus. See, not too many months after this episode happened, the earthly parents of the Son of God would have to flee. Joseph and Mary would have to seek safety in Egypt to avoid the murderous plans of King Herod. And then 12 years after Jesus' birth, you know the story, Jesus had stayed behind in Jerusalem in the temple while Joseph and Mary traveled back to Nazareth. And Joseph and Mary were looking around. They didn't see Jesus anywhere, and they became frantic, and they went back to Jerusalem to try to find him, looking high and low. He was there in the temple area, and what did Jesus say? He said, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? I mean, what a powerful reminder to Mary that this boy had some very unique circumstances surrounding his birth. She was reminded by her own son that God was his father. Two decades later, Mary was a widow. Now her firstborn son was leaving to begin the work that his father had given him. And to her, Jesus was becoming less and less hers. She was having to let him go. The reaffirming words of the shepherds, I believe, that they, too, separately, received a witness directly from God. That this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think those kind of words may have echoed throughout Mary's head because it says she treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Then as the ministry of Jesus took shape, he began making more and more seemingly outlandish statements. Mary and her other grown children wanted to stop Jesus and just bring him back home because obviously to them, he had lost his mind and they didn't want him to get in trouble. And so when Jesus was told that his mother and his brothers were outside, they were looking for him. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand to his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Word undoubtedly got back to Mary and she would no longer be able to allow that primary relationship that she had with Jesus be one of a mother to a son. But now to her, she would have to be a disciple to a master. Then when Jesus was on the cross, we have no record of Mary crying out for him to be saved. She was silent, watching. I believe that she knew who he was, that he was the Son of God, and she was willing to follow him. And I believe Jesus on the cross affirmed her faith 
when he said, woman, behold your son, referring to the disciple whom he loved. And he said to the disciple whom he loved, behold your mother. You see, Mary would have a new family now, a better family, an eternal family, the church. All of her relationships were transformed by being a follower of Jesus. And Mary followed through on her faith in Jesus. When Jesus had risen from the grave, he had gathered some of his disciples together, and he told his followers to remain there in Jerusalem until they received the Holy Spirit. And we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Then all of these with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They were up, up there in the upper room. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The same ones who earlier, just a few years earlier, wanted to come get Jesus and bring him back home because he was talking crazy. Now we're devoted to him. And they were up there in the upper room praying along with the other disciples. You know, it's my conviction that these unnamed shepherds, lowly and despised by the world, not only received the announcement that the Savior of the world has come, but their own story about being visited by the angels helped anchor Mary's, in Mary's soul the fact that her child was God in the flesh. And had these shepherds not conveyed that message to her, her own faith in the Lord may have grown weak. But I believe she kept these things, treasured them. She pondered these things in her heart. And we read in verse 20, The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Today, here's how I'm asking you to respond. I just want you to answer this question. Do you need to be saved today? Again, if you want to be saved... You need to understand that you've fallen short of God's glory because of sin. You need to turn away from that sin and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if today you're willing to do that, God is ready to save you.